Section 17 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 13a, 1561. The 18th of January, 1561, ought to be celebrated as the birthday of the English drama, for it was on this day that Thomas Sackville caused to be represented at Whitehall for the entertainment of Elizabeth and her court, the tragedy of Ferrex and Porrex, otherwise called Gorboduc, the joint production of himself and Thomas Norton. From the unrivalled force of imagination, the vigour and purity of diction, and the intimate knowledge and tasteful adaptation of the beauties of the Latin poets displayed in the contributions of Sackville to the Mirror of Magistrates, a lettered audience would conceive high expectations from his attempt in a new walk of poetry. But in the then barbarous state of our theatre, such a performance as Gorboduc must have been hailed as not only a novelty, but a wonder. It was the first piece composed in English on the ancient tragic model, with a regular division into five acts, closed by lyric choruses. It offered the first example of a story from British history, or what passed for history, completely dramatized and represented with an attempt at theatrical illusion for the earlier pieces published under the title of tragedies were either ballads or monologues which might indeed be sung or recited but were incapable of being acted the plot of the play was fraught with those circumstances of the deepest horror by which the dormant sensibilities of an inexperienced audience require and delight to be awakened an unwonted force of thought and dignity of language claimed the patience if not the admiration of the hearers for the long political disquisitions by which the business of the piece was somewhat painfully retarded the curiosity of the public respecting a drama which had been performed with general applause both at court and before the society of the middle temple encouraged its surreptitious appearance in print in fifteen sixty five and a second stolen edition was followed some years after by a corrected one published under the inspection of the authors themselves the taste for the legitimate drama thus awakened may be supposed to have led to the naturalization amongst us of several of its best ancient models the phoenicia of euripides appeared under the title of jocasta having received an english dress from gascoigne and kinvelmersch two students of gray's inn the ten tragedies of seneca english by different hands succeeded it is worthy of note however that none of these translators had the good taste to imitate the authors of ferrex and porrex in the adoption of blank verse and that one only amongst them made use of the heroic rhymed couplet the others employing the old alexandrine measure excepting in the choruses which were given in various kinds of stanza her majesty alone seems to have perceived the superior advantages or to have been tempted by the greater facility of sackville's verse and amongst the manuscripts of the bodleian library there is found a translation by her own hand of part of seneca's hercules Ateus, which is in this measure Wharton, however, adds that this specimen, quote, has no other recommendation than its royalty, end quote. The propensity of Elizabeth, amid all the serious cares of government and all the pettinesses of that political intrigue to which she was addicted, to occupy herself with attempts in polite literature for which she possessed no manner of talent, is not the least remarkable among the features of her extraordinary and complicated character. At the period of her reign, however, which we are now considering, public affairs must have required from her an almost undivided attention. By the death of Francis II, about the end of the year 1560, the Queen of Scots had become a widow, and the relations of England with France and Scotland had immediately assumed an entirely novel aspect. The change was in one respect highly to the advantage of Elizabeth. 
by the loss of her royal husband mary was deprived of that command over the resources of the french monarchy by which she had hoped to render effective her claim to the english crown and she found it expedient to discontinue for the present the use of the royal arms of england the enmity of the queen-mother had even chased her from that court where she had reigned so lately and obliged her to retire to her uncle the cardinal of lorraine at rheims but from the age and temper of the beautiful and aspiring mary it was to be expected that she would ere long be induced to re-enter the matrimonial state with some one of the princes of Europe, and neither as a sovereign nor a woman could Elizabeth regard without jealousy the plans for her re-establishment already agitated by her ambitious uncles of the House of Guise. Under these circumstances it was the first object of Elizabeth to obtain from her rival the formal ratification, which had hitherto been withheld, of the Treaty of Edinburgh, by one article of which Mary was pledged never to resume the English arms and Throgmorton, then ambassador to France, was instructed to urge strongly her immediate compliance with this certainly not inequitable demand. The Queen of Scots, however, persisted in evading its fulfilment, and on pleas so forced and futile as justly to confirm all previous suspicions of her sincerity. Matters were in this state between the two sovereigns when Mary came to the resolution of acceding to the unanimous entreaties of her subjects of both religions, by returning to govern in person the kingdom of her ancestors and she sent to request of elizabeth a safe conduct the english princess promptly replied that the queen had only to ratify the treaty of edinburgh and she should obtain not merely a safe conduct but free permission to shorten the fatigues of her voyage by passing through england where she should be received with all the marks of affection due to a beloved sister by this answer mary chose to regard herself as insulted and declaring to the english ambassador in great heat that nothing vexed her so much as to have exposed herself without necessity to such a refusal, and that she doubted not that she should be able to return to her country without the permission of Elizabeth, as she had quitted it in spite of all the vigilance of her brother, she abruptly broke off the conference. Henceforth the breach between these illustrious kinswomen became irreparable. In vain did Mary, after her arrival in Scotland, endeavour to remedy the imprudence which she was conscious of having committed, by professions of respect and friendship for with these hollow compliments she had the further indiscretion to mingle the demand that Elizabeth should publicly declare her next heir to the English throne, a proposal which this high-spirited princess could never hear without rage. Neither of the queens was a novice in the arts of dissimulation, and as often as it suited the interest or caprice of the moment, each would lavish upon the other, without scruple, every demonstration of amity, every pledge of affection. But jealousy, suspicion, and hatred dwelt irremovably in the inmost recesses of their hearts. The Protestant party in Scotland was powerfully protected by Elizabeth, the Catholic party in England was secretly incited by Mary, and it became scarcely less the care and occupation of each to disturb the administration of her rival than to fix her own on a solid basis. Mary had been attended on her return to Scotland by her three uncles, the Duke of Omal, the Grand Prior, and the Marquis of Elbeuf, with a numerous retinue of French nobility, and when after a short visit the Duke and the Grand Prior took their leave of her, they, with their company consisting of more than a hundred, returned through England, visiting in their way the court of Elizabeth. Brantome, who was of the party, has given incidentally the following particulars of their entertainment in the short memoir which he has devoted to the celebration of Henry II of France. Quote, Bref, c'était un roi très accompli et fort aimable. J'ai compté à la reine d'Angleterre, qui est aujourd'hui, que c'était le roi et le prince du monde qu'elle avait plus désiré de voir, pour le beau rapport qu'on lui en avait fait, et pour sa grande renommée qui en volait partout. Monsieur le connétable qui vit aujourd'hui s'en pourra bien ressouvenir. Ce fut lorsque retournant d'Écosse Monsieur le grand prieur de France de la maison de Lorraine, 
et lui, la reine, leur donna un soir un souper, où après ce fut un ballet de ses filles qu'elle avait ordonné et dressé, représentant les vierges de l'Évangile, desquelles les unes n'avaient leur lampe allumée, et les autres n'avaient ni l'huile ni feu en demandaient. Ces lampes étaient d'argent, fort gentiment faites et élaborées, et les dames étaient très belles et honnêtes et bien apprises, qui prirent nous autres François pour danser. Même la reine dansa, et de fort bonne grâce et belle majesté royale, car elle l'avait et était l'or en sa grande beauté et belle grâce. Rien ne l'a gasté que l'exécution de la pauvre reine d'Écosse. Sans cela, c'était une très rare princesse. Étant ainsi à table dévisant familièrement avec ses seigneurs, elle dit ces mots, après avoir fort loué le roi, « C'était le prince du monde que j'avais plus désiré de voir, et lui avait déjà mandé que bientôt je le verrais, et pour ce j'avais commandé de me faire bien appareiller mes galères, usant de ces mots, pour passer en France exprès pour le voir. » Monsieur le connétable, d'aujourd'hui, qui était alors Monsieur Danville, répondit Madame, je m'assure que vous eusiez été très contente de le voir, car son humeur et sa façon vous eussent plu. Aussi, lui, eût elle été très content de vous voir, car il eût fort aimé votre belle humeur et vos agréables façons, et vous eût fait un honorable accueil, et très bonne chère, et vous eût bien fait passer le temps. Je le crois et m'en assure, dit-elle. By the death of the King of France, and the increasing distractions of that unhappy country under the feeble minority of Charles the Ninth, the politics of the King of Spain were also affected. He had not now to fear the union of the crowns of England, France, and Scotland under the joint rule of Francis and Mary, which he had once regarded as a not improbable event. Consequently, his strongest inducement for keeping measures with Elizabeth ceased to operate, and he began daily to disclose more and more of that animosity with which he could not fail to regard a princess who was at once the heroine and patroness of Protestantism. From this time he began to furnish secret aids which added hope and courage to the English partisans of Popery and of Mary, and Elizabeth judged it a necessary policy to place her Catholic subjects under a more rigid system of restraint. It was contrary to her private inclinations to treat this sect with severity, and she was the more reluctant to do so, as she thus gratified in an especial manner the wishes of the puritanical or Calvinistic party in the church, their inveterate enemies, and by identifying in some measure her cause with theirs, saw herself obliged to conform in several points to their views rather than her own wishes. The law which rendered it penal to hear mass was first put in force against several persons of rank, that the example might strike the more terror. Sir Edward Waldegrave, in Mary's reign a privy councillor, was on this account committed to the tower, with his lady and some others. And Lord Loughborough, also a privy councillor much favoured and trusted by the late Queen, was brought into trouble on the same ground. Against Waldegrave it is to be feared that much cruelty was exercised during his imprisonment, for it is said to have occasioned his death, which occurred in the tower a few months afterwards. The High Commission Court now began to take cognizance of what was called recusancy, or the refusal to take the oaths of allegiance and supremacy. It also encouraged informations against such as refrained from joining in the established worship, and numerous professors of the old religion, both ecclesiastics and laity, were summoned on one account or another before this tribunal. Of these some were committed to prison, others restricted from entering certain places, as the two universities, or circumscribed within the limits of some town or county and most were bound in great penalties to be forthcoming whenever it should be required. As a further demonstration of zeal against popery, the Queen caused all the altars in Westminster Abbey to be pulled down, and about the same time a remarkable scene occurred between Her Majesty and Dr. Thomas Sampson, Dean of Christchurch. It happened that the Queen had appointed to go to St. Paul's on New Year's Day to hear the Dean preach, 
and he, thinking to gratify her on that day with an elegant and appropriate present, had procured some prints illustrative of the histories of the saints and martyrs, which he caused to be inserted in a richly bound prayer-book, and laid on the queen's cushion for her use. Her majesty opened the volume, but no sooner did the prince meet her eye than she frowned, blushed, and called to the verger to bring her the book she was accustomed to use. As soon as the service was ended, she went into the vestry and inquired of the dean who had brought that book, and when he explained that he had meant it as a present to her majesty, she chided him severely, inquired if he was ignorant of her proclamation against images, pictures, and Romish relics in the churches, and of her aversion to all idolatry, and strictly ordered that no similar mistake should be made in future. What renders this circumstance the more curious is that Elizabeth at this very time kept a crucifix in her private chapel, and that Samson was so far from being popishly inclined that he had refused the bishopric of Norwich the year before, on account of the habits and ceremonies, and was afterwards deprived of his deanery by Archbishop Parker for nonconformity. Never did parties in religion run higher than about this period of the reign of Elizabeth and we may remark as symptomatic of the temper of the times the manner in which a trivial accident was commented upon by adverse disputants the beautiful steeple of st paul's cathedral the loftiest in the kingdom had been stricken by lightning and utterly destroyed together with the bells and roof a papist immediately dispersed a paper representing this accident as a judgment of heaven for the discontinuance of the matins and other services which had used to be performed in the church at different hours of the day and night Pilkington, Bishop of Durham, who preached at Paul's Cross after the accident, was equally disposed to regard it as a judgment, but on the sins of London in general, and particularly on certain abuses by which the church had formerly been polluted. In a tract published in answer to that of the Papist, he afterwards gave an animated description of the practices of which this cathedral had been the theatre, curious at the present day as a record of forgotten customs. He said that, quote, no place had been more abused than Paul's had been, nor more against the receiving of Christ's gospel. Wherefore it was more wonder that God had spared it so long than that he overthrew it now. From the top of the spear, at coronations or other solemn triumphs, some for vain glory had used to throw themselves down by a rope, and so killed themselves, vainly to please other men's eyes. At the battlements of the steeple sundry times were used their popish anthems to call upon their gods, with torch and taper, in the evenings in the top of one of the pinnacles was lollard's tower where many an innocent soul had been by them cruelly tormented and murdered in the middest alley was their long censer reaching from the roof to the ground as though the holy ghost came down in their sensing in likeness of a dove in the arches men commonly complained of wrong and delayed judgments in ecclesiastical causes and diverse had been condemned there by annas and caiaphas for christ's cause their images hung on every wall, pillar and door, with their pilgrimages and worshippings of them, passing over their massing and many altars, and the rest of their popish service. The south alley was for usury and popery, the north for simony, and the horse-fair in the midst for all kinds of bargains, meetings, brawlings, murders, conspiracies. The font for ordinary payments of money is well known to all men as the beggar knows his dish. So that without and within, above the ground and under, over the roof and beneath, from the top of the steeple and spire, down to the low floor, not one spot was free from wickedness. The practice here alluded to, of making the nave of St. Paul's a kind of exchange for the transaction of all kinds of business, and a place of meeting for idlers of every sort, is frequently referred to by the writers of this and the two succeeding reigns, and when or by what means this custom was put an end to does not appear. It was here that Sir Nicholas Throgmorton held a conference with an emissary of Wyatt's, it was here that one of the bravos engaged in the noted murder of Arden of Feversham was hired. 
it was in Paul's that Falstaff is made to say he quote-unquote bought Bardolph. In Bishop Earle's admirable little book called Microcosmography, the scene is described with all the wit of the author and somewhat of the quaintness of his age, which was that of James I. Quote, Paul's Walk is the land's epitome, or you may call it the lesser isle of Great Britain. It is, more than this, the whole world's map, which you may here discern in its perfectest motion, jostling and turning. It is the great exchange of all discourse, and no business whatsoever but is here stirring into foot. It is the synod of all Pate's politic, joined and laid together in most serious posture, and they are not half so busy at the Parliament. It is the market of young lecturers, whom you may cheapen here at all rates and sizes. It is the general mint of all famous lies, which are here, like the legends of popery, first coined and stamped in the church. All inventions are emptied here, and not a few pockets. The best sign of a temple in it is that it is the thieves' sanctuary. The visitants are all men without exception, but the principal inhabitants and possessors are stale knights and captains out of service, men of long rapiers and breeches which, after all, turn merchants here and traffic for news. Some make it a preface to their dinner, but thriftier men make it their ordinary, and board here very cheap." The vigilant ministers of Elizabeth had now begun to alarm themselves and her with apprehensions of plots against her life from the malice of the papists and it would be rash to pronounce that such fears were entirely void of foundation. But we may be permitted to smile at the ignorant credulity on the subject of poisons, universal indeed in that age, which dictated the following minute of counsel, extant in the handwriting of Cecil. Quote, we think it very convenient that your Majesty's apparel, and specially all manner of things that shall touch any part of your Majesty's body bare, be circumspectly looked unto, and that no person be permitted to come near it, but such as have the trust and charge thereof. Item, that no manner of perfume either in apparel or sleeves, gloves or such like, or otherwise that shall be appointed for your majesty's savour, be presented by any stranger or other person, but that the same be corrected by some other fume. Item, that no foreign meat or dishes being dressed out of your majesty's court be brought to your food, without assured knowledge from whom the same cometh, and that no use be had hereof. Item, that it may please your majesty to take the advice of your physician, for the receiving weekly twice some preservative contra pestem et venena, as there be many good things et salutaria. Item, it may please your majesty to give order who shall take the charge of the back doors to your chamberers' chambers, where laundresses, tailors, wardrobers, and the like used to come, and that the same doors be duly attended upon, as becometh, and not to stand open but on necessity. Item, that the privy chamber may be better ordered, with an attendance of an usher and the gentlemen and grooms, end quote. It was fortunate that the same exaggerated notions of the power of poisons prevailed among papists as protestants. Against the ill effects of a drug applied by direction of a Spanish friar to the arms of a chair and the pommel of a saddle, the antidotes received twice a week might be depended upon as an effectual preservative. From these perils, real or imaginary, none of which, however, appeared to have taken strong hold of the cheerful and courageous temper of the queen, her attention and that of her council was for some time diverted by the expectation of a royal suitor. Eric, king of Sweden, whose hopes of final success in his addresses were kept up in spite of the repeated denials of the queen, by the artifice of some Englishman at his court who deluded him by pretended secret intelligence, had sent to her majesty a royal present, and declared his intention of following in person. The present consisted of eighteen large piebald horses, and two shiploads of precious articles which are not particularized. It does not appear that this offering was ill-received, 
but as elizabeth was determined not to relent in favour of the sender she caused him to be apprised of the impositions passed upon him by the english to whom he had given ear at the same time expressing her anxious hope that he would spare himself the fatigues of a fruitless voyage fearing however that he might be already on his way she occupied herself in preparations for receiving him with all the hospitality and splendour due to his errand his rank and her own honour it was at the same time a business of some perplexity so to regulate all these matters of ceremony that neither eric himself nor others might conclude that he was a favoured suitor among the state papers of the time we find first a letter of counsel to the lord mayor setting forth that quote, whereas certain bookbinders and stationers did utter certain papers wherein were printed the face of her majesty and the king of sweden although her majesty was not miscontented that either her own face or that of this king should be portrayed yet to be joined in the same paper with him or any other prince who was known to have made request for marriage to her was what she could not allow accordingly it was her pleasure that the lord mayor should seize all such papers and pack them up so that none of them should get abroad otherwise she might seem to authorize this joining of herself in marriage to him which might seem to touch her in honour next we have a letter to the duke of norfolk directing the manner in which he should go to meet the king if he landed at any part of norfolk or suffolk and lastly we have the solemn judgment of the lord treasurer the lord steward and the lord chamberlain on the ceremonial to be observed towards him on his arrival by the queen herself one paragraph is conceived with all the prudery and the deep policy about trifles which marked the character of elizabeth herself quote, by cause the queen's majesty is a maid in this case would many things be omitted of honour and courtesy which otherwise were meet to be showed to him as in like cases hath been of kings of this land to others and therefore it shall be necessary that the gravest of her council do as of their own judgment excuse the lack thereof to the king and yet on their own parts offer the supplement thereof with reverence after all, the King of Sweden never came. End of section 17